You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 86. On today's show, I chat with Maitre Gopalakrishnan, CEO of Liquidify, the bond investing education app. We discuss bond investing, also known as fixed income, the difference between trading bonds versus purchasing government I-bonds or EE bonds, tax advantages of government and municipal bonds, and how bonds can be federally tax-free when used for education. Thank you to my patrons for supporting the show. You have been wildly supportive, both from financial pledges to suggestions of episode topics and guests, which is why we have this great episode today. The outtakes from this interview are available to patrons over at patreon.com artisticfinance. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I have Maitre Gopalakrishnan on the show. Welcome, Maitre. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Ethan. We are recording this on January 18th, 2022. The Omicron variant of COVID-19 is still in full swing, which makes it hit or miss as to which Broadway or West End shows are going to be playing or any live event for that matter. Just now in Times Square on the Red Steps, there is a vigil, a candlelight vigil for Michelle Goh, who died this past weekend after being pushed in front of a train by a stranger. And that has called for a renewed call to stop Asian hate in the USA. That is where we are in space and time. And you've heard me say this before, and perhaps you've even heard this on the previous episode, but I'm going to repeat it for any first-time listeners. Saving is important, but investing that savings is just as important, and that is to fight our arch-nemesis, inflation. And remember our saying, if you're not investing, you're dying. So today, please review your investment plan. And if you don't have one, sketch one out. I'll say the thing that you've never heard the host of any show ever say, which is stop this episode right now and go sketch out an investment plan. And it can be as simple as save $100 on the first day of every month and put that into the S&P 500. I prefer smaller, more frequent payments. So the same difference would be save $25 a week and put that into the S&P 500. But whatever strategy you prefer, it will likely involve dollar cost averaging, or as the kids are saying these days, stacking into your investments. And now after today's conversation, one of those investments just might be bonds. And speaking of, let's get to our bond expert guest, Maitre. Can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. So my name is Maitre. I am the founder and CEO of a company making bonds more accessible for individual investors. I am located in the area around Boulder, Colorado, and have been living here most of my life. I'm 29 years old. Um, identify as female, studied uh, physics, did a bachelor's, master's in physics at the University of Colorado Boulder, and then completed a master's in management science and engineering from Stanford. But yeah, back here in the Boulder area, that's pretty much it. I guess I'm from India, from the city of Chennai, which is in the southern part. I was born there, actually, but moved here when I was six months old. So I'm basically 
Colorado <laughs> at this point. So Another thing actually I wanted to mention, or I wanted you to talk about a little bit, what is your connection to the ballet world? I have been training in ballet since the age of three, actually. Um, and I trained, I guess, more formally until the age of 18. I basically do ballet, you know, four or five days a week, um, even now in the pandemic um, with online classes, been kind of in and out of um, the studio. It is my greatest passion. I absolutely love it. But one of the reasons that I was particularly interested in, in being on this podcast and sharing any knowledge that I could provide, I remember back when I was 18, kind of thinking through that decision of, do I want to go down the professional dance path? And, and one of my considerations was, well, it can be pretty difficult financially, honestly, um, to get into the arts. It's such a incredible, noble career. And I so greatly appreciate the arts. And I love all performing arts and visual arts, but just love going to uh, theater performances, dance performances, um, musical events, everything. But it's very difficult on the artist. It's imperative, I think, to think very proactively about savings plans and things like that and investing um, early on. And that was honestly a factor in deciding not to do professional ballet, which I, I hate to say now, but yeah, so I've, I've been dancing my whole life. Um, I love choreographing dance as well. Um, I've choreographed a couple of pieces for myself as well as um, on other dancers and love to teach dance to kids and adults. It's just a wonderful art and it gives back a lot to you um, as much as you put in. So, so, so yeah. now your creative and financial personality, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member or a piece of art that you like? Obviously, I love to go to the ballet. Um, I just have such a fond memory of um, going to um, New York City and seeing the New York City Ballet perform Swan Lake, which is um, one of my favorite ballets and one that I've, I've been fortunate to be a part of when I was studying ballet. I also love, love, love concerts. Super sad with COVID that that's a little bit more difficult to experience. Um, I'm a huge fan of instrumental styles of music. So Explosions in the Sky, I don't know if you've heard of this band, is one of my favorite, kind of a post-rock, all instrumental band. Their concerts are simply transformative. Like you go there and, and you're you're transported to another world. I really love experiencing, I think, live art, performing art. I love it. I love it. All right. Are you good or bad with money? I'm good in the sense that I save and I am not too emotional, I guess, relatively about investing. So I'm able to put that money away and not think of it and not worry too much about the fluctuations, which is really difficult to do. Um, I just tend to be a more long-term thinker kind of person, but I am a slightly more conservative investor, I'd say. Um, I'm not too big on speculative investments. Some people you know, can capitalize and realize really big gains from that. And then I look at them like, well, I guess I, I didn't get onto that train, but um, but at the same time, you know, I feel good and feel like sound sleeping at night um, with what I invest in. So that that makes perfect sense that you're a conservative investor because you're here to tell us about bonds, which are like <laughs> the conservative thing to do. Exactly. So we're discussing <laughs> bonds today because a couple people reached out to me and asked me about bonds. Specifically, they were asking me about I bonds, which in Q1 2022 are offering a 7.12% interest rate, which I didn't know because I didn't even know what an I-bond was. So I had to look that up. 7.12% is really incredible considering we live in a world where a CD in a bank is going to get you 3% in like a best case scenario. And then a savings account, if you really hunt out like Ally Bank, would maybe give you 2% best case scenario. And then 
Bonds also have virtually no volatility. (laughs) We're going to get to all this, but first things first, what is a bond? It's simply an IOU, honestly, Um, if you want to just boil it down to the to the simplest terms, if you're lending your friend money and then they're paying you back over time, it's like that, but you're lending the money to a company or to a municipality or the federal government or something like this. And you're getting, usually, not always, but you're getting um, interest on that bond, right? So you're getting a certain fixed amount of money periodically once or twice a year. And that's why it's called fixed income. It's a source of income that you can more or less rely on over that period of time until the bond matures. And then you get that original investment that you made in the company or the government back. In in the most simple of terms, it's an IOU. So a bond is an IOU, which we just did an episode on NFTs, and we boiled that down to it's a certificate of authenticity. So a bond is an IOU. Exactly. So if I get a bond, somebody owes me. Someone owes you. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) We won't talk about the reverse of that. Okay, so how is it different from a CD at a bank or even interest at a bank? When you're putting money into something like a CD um, or you're just leaving it in savings, you're getting some small amount of interest over time, right? So if you look at your bank statement and you're looking at that interest, you'll get, I don't know, a few bucks here and there for if you're just leaving a few thousand dollars in your bank. That doesn't really have the same type of fixed structure. As a bond, for a bond, you know, you're getting coupon payments X amount of times per year, and then there's a maturity, right? There's a point at which the bond matures. And at that point, you're getting what you call your principal back. Um, So if you are getting a $1,000 bond or something, you get the $1,000 back at the end of that period of time. Um, So it has a lot more, I would say, structure around it, and it's issued by a corporation or by federal government or by a local government. Um, there's other issuers as well, and we can talk about that um, more as well. But, yeah. You used you used two words. You said coupon and maturity. So like if, if we use a bond, say I get a bond for one year, can you break down where what would be the coupon and what would be the maturity? So coupon is basically your interest. You're doing this company or the government something of a favor by giving them some money up front. So when they're paying you back, they're giving you a little bit of an extra reward as a, as a thank you for, well, I'm sure it's not. (laughs) It's an IOU. It's just a, it's just a structure, right? It's just a financial structure, but that's, that's the idea. Um, You're getting paid back for putting that money up front and giving it to them. So the coupons are a small fraction of, you know, your overall payment that you're getting back probably once or twice a year, you would get what you invested at the beginning at maturity. And that is a little subtle as well. You're buying the bond at a certain price. So if the bond is a $1,000 bond, you might buy it at a price below $1,000 or above $1,000. But at the end of that term, you're going to get $1,000 back. The issuers are going to compensate you for the different risks or penalize you, I guess, for buying a bond at less than that amount with what the coupon rates are and and what the structure of the bond is. So um, I don't know if that helped or made sense. I'm happy to dive in anymore. Well, it made sense, but it overwhelmed me at the same time. If I'm buying a bond, do I need to worry about the coupon? 
do I need to look for special coupon bonds? It all depends on what you're trying to do. So like if you're looking for a fixed income and you want to get an income of X amount every year, right? And this is why this is super valuable for people who are generally a little older and are kind of getting close to retirement is they want to have that more like fixed stream of income. And so if you're looking at something with a 5% or 6% coupon or something like this, right? You no, no matter what, unless your issuer defaults for some reason, right, that you're going to get that amount every six months, no matter what. And then that can be also important in terms of what you do with that money when you get it. So you get the money and then you can reinvest it into the bond market. You can reinvest it somewhere else. That's also a consideration is, is what you're doing when you get those coupons and how you're cycling that back in to your investment plan. Okay. So you buy a bond in my imaginary scenario of a year, you buy this bond and let's say you get a quarterly coupon. Sure. So every quarter it's giving you, let's say 6%. Yeah. You can keep that doing nothing in your savings account. You could put that back into more bonds or you could go spend it. I, I don't Pretty know. much, yeah. <laughs> so then at maturity, you're getting, you've already gotten your extra payments. So at maturity, you get the principal back. The principal, yeah. Okay. And then you said you could buy it for less than like it's a thousand dollar bond. Yeah. How could you buy something for less than whatever the principal is? It's what it's valued at on the market. Right. So, and that's why bonds are an investment and they're looked at kind of in the, in the context of the broader market. When you're buying a bond and thinking about it from the standpoint of just getting income every half a year, every year, whatever it is, that's kind of looking at the fixed income element. But then when you're thinking about, okay, buying a bond, at a, it's called a premium if you're buying it kind of above that $1,000 mark or whatever that mark is, or at a discount. That's when you're really looking at what the value of the bond is relative to the rest of the universe of bonds, what the value of the bond is going to be in the long term and that kind of thing. So when you're buying something at a discount, right, um, it's possible that you may have a lower coupon rate than comparable bonds that sell a little bit higher. If you're buying at a premium, there might be advantages there. They might give you a higher coupon rate. Um, there might be tax advantages um, because you bought the bond at a higher price than the $1,000 mark. So, so there's a lot of ways that issuers kind of need to think of compensating you for those, um, I guess, risks um, and, and making it kind of even and making it like truly a, a market. Um, for everyone. Okay. So you're only going to get it at less than its value if you're in the in the market. So there's governments and companies that are creating these bonds for $1,000 or so, let's say. And so people are buying them at $1,000 knowing they're going to make 1200 back over the course of it. Yeah. But I could, I could only buy it for less if I buy it on the secondary market. Yeah. So there's a primary and secondary market. Um, and you can actually buy a bond um, at what's called an original issue discount. So there is that. And, and when you're buying a bond at, at something like a discount, you also want to be healthily skeptical of the issuer and who you're buying it from, right? Because um, there might be a reason they're discounting bond. That said, so yeah, you would buy the original issues are generally going to be something like a, like an even value, like a thousand dollars or $5,000 or something like this. When it's sold on the secondary market, that's when you have someone like a broker coming in and kind of making those assessments um, on price. So maturity, I've figured out that that just means at the end when you get your original money back. That's right. In my online research, I came across short, medium and long-term 
maturities. What's the difference there? Um, in terms of time windows, short is in the one to five year range. Um, intermediate or medium is in the five to 12 year range. Um, and then long is 12 years and beyond. When you're looking at maturity, um, obviously, for your own personal financial circumstances, you're looking at when you want to get that principal back. But then from a risk standpoint, a lot more can happen or will happen um, in 30 years than in one or two years, right? There are more risks baked into those longer term bonds. So that's something that that you'll want to consider. Long term bonds might have a higher yield. Um, short term bonds may have a lower yield because you know they're not as risky. They're more of a sure bet. When you are looking at short to long term bonds, you want to look at it in the context of what's happening and what seems to be happening in the market. So there's um, a number of ways that we can see a potential recession coming, um, something called the yield curve. And the yield curve, the shape of the yield curve tends to be a pretty strong indicator, at least historically, of where the overall market is going, you know, based on the shape of that yield curve. Well, it seems like a recession could be near. It may behoove you to, to hold off on investing in anything shorter term that could default really quickly because the economy is going to go south, right? So something to factor in as well um, when you're looking at bond maturities and, and how to consider that for your investing. I'm 33. If I go looking to get a bond, I guess I would probably gravitate toward the longer term. It's like if I'm making the decision for myself, whereas if I'm 60, I might go for the three to five year bonds. That's definitely, yeah. Your appetite for risk is certainly going to be higher, younger, because you're going to be able to make it through a few more economic cycles, right? Before you retire. Whereas when you're getting close to retirement, you are thinking about having that income kind of day to day as a passive source. So you would probably gravitate towards short-term bonds. Okay. There's another word that I found in my online research called callability. And this was something like that maybe you would have to worry about. Is callability a word I need to know? And what does it mean? Yeah. So if you were to go onto your uh, brokerage site or whatever and look at different bonds that are available, you'll see probably a call in that says callable, yes or no. Callability is basically a right for the bond issuer to um, sort of change their terms in a way and take their bond back at a given time. And so there's a period of time in which the bond is callable. And after that, the bond is not callable, and that call date is prior to the maturity date. They sometimes will compensate you with higher coupons for the risks of callability, but essentially you're just not going to get those coupon payments after that point. Say your bond is a 10-year bond. It has a five, I don't know, it's callable for a five-year period of time. And then they call it at that five-year period. At that point, you will get your principal back. You'll get all your coupon payments up to that point, And you're not going to get any coupon payments from years five to 10. There may be different reasons an issuer might do that. Oftentimes, it's because the whole kind of nature of the market has changed. And they are able to reissue those bonds at lower interest rates and basically pay less money um, to the people buying those bonds, they'll recall those bonds and, and reissue them at that lower rate. It's just, it's one of those risks where you could potentially be compensated um, with a higher coupon in the period of time that it's available. So worst case scenario, you get a bond for like $1,000 with a 10% coupon every quarter. Sure. Worst case scenario, like in the second quarter, they call that and they pay you back the principal and the coupon up to that point. Yeah. And then you're done. So, so worst case scenario, you don't lose any money. 
you just don't make as much as you thought you were going. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess it's more of a concern when you're relying on that source of income in some way for maybe paying certain bills or in retirement or something like this. But yeah, that's really the risk. Okay. So bonds are like the safe haven. It's sort of like cash, but you don't want to be in cash because you're not getting interest. So you want to be in bonds. Yeah. So there's callability is a risk that you won't make as much as you thought. You were talking about the inverted yield curve. So interest rates of bonds could go up or down depending on where the market is. Are there any other risks with bonds? Yeah, I would say one of the greatest considerations, and we talked about junk bonds a little bit. Something we want to look at is credit ratings. Credit ratings just tell you the level of credit worthiness of the bond issuer. And it's just like, you know, some friends you you trust, if you lend them money, they're going to pay you back. And other friends, you know, they're a little more sketchy. They, <laughs> they may not give your money back in time or at all. It's the same kind of thing with bonds, but they put a credit rating system around it um, so that it's a lot more transparent to see, okay, you know, this is a highly rated municipality or highly rated company that has a very high likelihood of paying you back. That's called default risk um, or credit risk. When you find a bond that has a credit rating below a triple B minus, that is a junk bond. That's a non-investment grade bond. You just want to be wary of those. Now they're almost like in the category of speculative investments. There's a lot of high yield or junk bonds that you probably have heard about that companies are issuing. You really want to make sure you know the company know their financial situation and feel relatively confident in that before you're putting money in something like a junk bond. That's definitely a risk. And then the interest rates changing, of course, and the value of your bond relative to other bonds of a similar structure in the market. Um, That's kind of the final risk. Going back to junk bonds, an example that our listeners might know is there's the Disney company. So if Disney issued a bond, I'm presuming that would probably be triple A. They're going to pay you off that bond. Then there's another brand called National Lampoon (laughs) that is not doing so well these days. (laughs) And National Lampoon, if they offer a bond, I mean, I don't advise anything on this show, but I know Ethan Steimel would probably not go for a National Lampoon bond because I'm not sure it would be paid back. (laughs) Neither would my trick. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So then, so then the other risk you were saying, the interest might fluctuate. Is that the inverted yield curve that you were talking about? Yes and no. Um, you know, bonds have a certain structure based on their rating, their maturity, their coupon, you know, the type of issuer, et cetera. You can find other bonds that have a similar structure. When you are looking at your bond relative to other similar bonds in the market, you want to be making sure that you're yielding kind of within the range of those other bonds. Ultimately, you're often holding on to a bond, right? When you buy it, you're holding on to it until maturity. But if you're considering your bond in the context of the market, a bond with your similar structure, right, that has this kind of credit rating and this kind of maturity and and, and that sort of thing, those bonds might end up having higher or lower yields over time. The risk is more if you're going to want to go and sell that bond um, on the market, would you be able to find a similar bond that has, you know, a comparable coupon or higher coupon payment or something like that? Or would that be difficult to find? It's a good time to mention that 
in the bond market, price and yield are oppositely correlated. So when something is yielding a little bit on the higher end, the price is a little lower. That can kind of intuitively make sense because, you know, maybe when there's something a little bit riskier, you have to charge a lower price, but it can also yield higher. The risk is really just considering your bond in the context of all bonds. And if that's not a problem and you're really just using it to, to get your coupon payments and that's it, and you don't care, that's fine. But that's what I mean by looking at like interest rate risk. There's ways to kind of quantitatively measure that. Um, if you were to look into something called duration, um, that's like a hard metric bond investors use to evaluate that particular risk. So you can probably um, find that or calculate that really easily, but that's the interest rate risk. And there was one more risk, did you say inflation? Yes, I mean, this is why people are probably looking into I-bonds right now, right? Inflation is at an all-time high um, relative to, to recent years. And so when you're considering inflation risk, you're getting a certain fixed amount of payment back every quarter, every semi-annually or something like this, that amount that you're guaranteed to get back could underperform compared to what the inflation rate is. So you want to make sure that your coupon rate is ideally exceeding that inflation rate, otherwise kind of losing money or maybe breaking even at best. Okay. All right. So those are the risks. Now, I've heard of treasury bonds, which are government bonds, and I've heard of companies creating bonds. So what types of bonds are there and then which are the most common? Yeah. Treasury bonds, um, agency bonds, savings bonds. These are all from um, the federal government. Um, government agency bonds are a little funky. They're basically government owned corporations, sort of. So um, examples are the Tennessee Valley Authority or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Those are government agencies. These are all bonds people, like individual investors commonly dabble in because you can go on this website, treasurydirect.gov, and you can buy your bonds right there. And then there's also corporate bonds and municipal bonds. Corporate bonds are more common than municipal bonds, but it's a hundred plus trillion dollar universe globally. So there's a lot of everything. <laughs> so corporate bonds are issued, they're just debt, right? Issued by public companies. And then municipal bonds are issued by cities. Within the category of municipal bonds, you know, you have general obligation bonds, which are generally helping the city function regularly. There are also more specific municipal bonds that are issued. And so that can be appealing for an investor that maybe wants to invest in a school district or university or something like this, or certain types of bonds that are supporting certain causes. And so a lot of infrastructure bonds and, and that sort of thing will be issued through municipalities. Um, and then we touch on junk bonds. Those are the different categories. Okay. Okay. So now on to I bonds that have the 7.12% interest rate. So I looked it up twice a year. They reevaluate what percentage rate the coupon or the interest is going to be on these bonds. So twice a year, it's at 7.12% until May of 2022, at which point they'll reevaluate and it'll either go up or it'll go down. So what are I-bonds? Yeah, I-bonds are savings bonds. So there's there's two categories of bonds that you can buy right now. And so it's I-bonds and EE-bonds. Really, the difference is I-bonds factor in inflation. Um, and so that's why you see the 7.12% is just inflation is really high right now. I-bonds factor that in and change the interest rate based on inflation plus you know a standard interest rate. Whereas EE bonds don't do that. It's just a fixed rate for as long as you have the bond. And and fixed rate bond, the EE bonds, um, they basically guarantee 
apparently they guaranteed double the value um, over the term of the bond, which is usually pretty long, like 30 years, whereas I-bonds don't have that guarantee, but they do adjust for inflation. So in environments like now, it can be really helpful. Okay, so if I go buy an I-bond right now at 7.12% interest, I assume the standard time frame is like 30 years. Yeah. Does that mean I'm getting 7.12% for 30 years or it fluctuates every two, like twice a year? It fluctuates. They evaluate it twice a year, but it's it's all based on inflation on the consumer price index. Um, so they're going to look at that and they're going to figure out what the rate is going to be just based on inflation. And there's a couple of terms um, around both I and E bonds. So you can't redeem your bond for a year. If you redeem it within from the window of one to five years, you actually have to pay a three-month interest penalty. And that can affect your real interest rate, right? Um, when you're looking over the period of time and how much you got paid over that time. So that's something to consider. It is exempt from state and local taxes, and um, both of these bonds are. And it could be exempt from federal taxes if the money is used for higher education. Um, again, there's terms around that. Um, I'm not going to necessarily advise on that, but um, just some things to consider. That can be can be difficult to lock your money away at a certain rate for that period of time if it could seem like inflation would go down, right? Because um, if inflation is going to decline, then potentially there are many other bonds out on the market that might get you a better interest rate. They don't seem so favorable now compared to 7.12%, but maybe they would and a couple of years or five years, we can't predict inflation. But Okay, okay. That's, I feel like you just hit on a huge thing <laughs> right there. You, you said they're exempt from state and local taxes. So depending on where you are in New York, that could be really benefit. So you would get be getting 7.12% interest. Yeah. And then you wouldn't be paying taxes, at least on the state level. On the income that you're getting, yeah. And then when it hits maturity and you get that full amount, right, you've already paid that. So that doesn't count as income, question mark. Okay, for, for savings bonds, you're not paying um, taxes on your income. But if you were to, so that's any of the income. If you're selling the bond, right, then you're incurring something called a capital gain or loss. And that is treated differently um, than income. So I think taxes are one of the most important considerations for a bond investor. There's a lot you can get from, if, especially in a place like California or New York. Um, depending on your income bracket, it might be really, really beneficial to invest in a bond that's tax-free because you can protect all of that money um, from state and local taxes. A lot of people put money into especially municipal bonds because of that. Because municipal bonds are exempt from federal taxes, the income, um, just to clarify the income, if you're investing in bonds in state, then they're exempt from state and local taxes. So you've got to weigh you know, what your coupon payments are relative to what that tax saving is. But yeah. So you keep saying or clarifying that it's of the income. You're not being taxed on the income. So I think there's like two ways to get bonds, which is one, you go to the bank or to the company and you buy that bond and you hold it till maturity. In that case, you don't really have to worry about any of this difference between the income or whatever, because it's all the income. But I think you would only have to worry about paying taxes on it if you're selling the bond, which would be over in the bond market, right? Right, exactly. Okay, so that's only for what I would call sophisticated bond investors. <laughs> have to worry about that part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you're when you're selling anything, it's the same thing for stocks, right? Um, you're incurring some sort of capital gain or loss. Depending on the state, and you really have to look at your state and local laws for this as well, because there are some states that don't have capital 
capital gains taxes. So that might not be something you have to worry about. That's where you really have to pay um, taxes. So just in generally, like corporate bonds are, are one end of the spectrum where you're paying taxes on all levels. And then municipal bonds, you're not paying federal taxes. If you're investing in state, you're not paying state or local taxes. There's four states that are exempted, I think, but most other states, that's the case. And then government bonds, there's a pretty wide range of types of bonds. So the taxation policy you know, varies there. So for savings bonds, it's the case. Um, and yeah, if you're getting into higher education, that can be a great way to exempt yourself from federal taxes and, and funnel that money towards education costs. Yeah, because uh, it's like the default thing is that, oh, when you have a kid, open up a 529 savings plan and invest you know, the money tax-free I didn't know about this bond exemption. So if you were fortunate enough to be able to set aside, let's say, like $20,000 in bonds for your child's education, $20,000 of bonds when they're born, they reach age 18 and you mature those bonds or you timed it out so that they mature then, then use that money on education, then that's all federal and state tax-free. And then let's say they decide they don't want to go into higher education. That's cool. You just pay the taxes, pay the taxes on it. No problem. You're not going to be penalized so much that it wasn't worth it, really. So that's a whole that's a whole way to not bother with opening up another exactly. retirement account or 529 plan. 529 or something. Yeah. Whoa, you're bl- blowing my mind here. <laughs> my it is important to consider, though, that for these savings bonds, there are limits on how much you can buy. And it's not particularly high. I think it's like $10,000. And then there's a way you can invest an additional $5,000 via tax returns or something like this. Um, look into the terms a little bit more. This is for I, I bonds and E bonds that you're limited to $10,000. Yeah. Yeah. You're limited to $10,000. Plus there's a way that you can invest an additional $5,000. Um, so maybe you, you know, if you want to invest a hundred K into future college education for your kid. You're not going to necessarily be able to do that with these bonds, but it can get you a certain ways. Yeah. Yeah. But you could put 85 in the 529 and then put 15,000 over here. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Mix it up. (laughs) All right. So super basic question here. Where do I purchase bonds? Buy an actual bond from a company or the treasury? And then how do I buy them if I'm, I'm investing in the bond market? And then where can I sell them? Because I, I can only sell on the market, right? I, if I buy it directly from the company, I can't sell that to somebody, right? Yeah. Um, this gets into, um, I guess, what we were discussing earlier, the primary versus secondary market. Typically, the way that bonds are issued primary market, they're done through a pretty complex, convoluted series of steps where the bonds are auctioned. They require an underwriter to guarantee those bonds in a way. A lot of the companies that get those primary issues tend to be the heavy hitters, um, you know, the JP Morgans and Morgan Stanleys of the world. From a corporate and municipal bond standpoint, that might be more what it looks like. But for government bonds, for federal government bonds, so that means treasury savings bonds, you can just go on this website, treasurydirect.gov, and you can buy bonds directly on there. Those bonds you can buy at smaller amounts, 50 or $100, as opposed to having to pay you know, a thousand or five thousand or ten thousand dollars to get corporate or municipal bonds. If you're buying corporate or muni bonds, you can go on your brokerage like a Charles Schwab or an E-Trade or something like this. There's a pretty large selection of bonds there. And then you can also get it through kind of a private or individual broker or a smaller brokerage firm that specializes in bonds. Um, if, if you really want to search for something specific, something to really be wary of when you're buying bonds in the secondary market. 
you just don't have the level of transparency in this market as you do in the stock market, right? Because it's a lot more decentralized. You know, there's been a lot more policies recently that have been enacted to increase price transparency for investors, but brokers could charge pretty hefty fees for both the buyer and the seller on those exchanges. And so that's something that you want to be really wary of. And um, I know for the municipal securities regulatory board, for, so where the municipal bond policy takes effect, you are required to report trades within 15 minutes after, which is an eternity compared to the stock market, right? That, that price transparency is just not there. And people aren't trading bonds as frequently as stocks for obvious reasons, it's fixed income. So if I log in on Robinhood, and I'm going to buy some bonds, I won't really see those transaction fees, right? Or will I? Like, is it baked into the cost? Yeah, it's baked into the cost. I don't think you can actually buy individual bonds um, on Robinhood. It's, it's pretty complicated to get into that market. Your best bet would be something like a Charles Schwab or an E-Trade or something like this. Because I'm thinking of like a bond index fund. Do they have that? Or oh, have- yes. So I was going to say ETFs or bond index, yeah, bond funds. Um, you can definitely buy those. And that might be the way to go for a lot of investors. And again, like not making any investment recommendations for people. When you're buying an individual bond, you're purchasing at $1,000 a bond or $5,000 a bond or something like this. People that tend to invest in a lot of individual bonds tend to have a lot of capital (laughs) um, to do so, so that they can diversify enough. With a bond ETF, you have a professional investment manager doing that for you. And you're just getting a chunk of that, basically, just like a stock ETF. So you can get that diversification. That can come with more costs. There's management fees, and you may not get the tax benefits that you would with individual bonds. But that can definitely be a way to go if you want to get into the bond market. What I'm hearing is if you have $10,000 lying around and you want to go buy some I-bonds, it probably behooves you to go do that at treasurydirect.com. <laughs> oh, dot gov. Treasurydirect.gov. Yeah. So if you only have $500, then it makes more sense to log into Charles Schwab or Robinhood and get a bond ETF because it's easier than keeping track of that. Yeah. So treasury bonds or any of those government bonds or savings bonds, you can buy in smaller volumes. So you can buy a $50 bond or $100 bond. And you don't necessarily need to diversify there as much because those are super secure. Like the government's not going to default on all its treasury bonds, right? Um, most likely, hopefully. So we can feel very, very comfortable putting a little bit of money into that. If you are looking to really build out more of a bond portfolio beyond just treasury bonds, I think a bond ETF is kind of a good introduction. Just have to consider things like expense ratios, which you're already considering for stock ETFs. Um, you're getting the thing for your buck, basically, um, by doing that. But the fees, we would just look at the expense ratio for fees. Yeah. We don't have to really worry about it so much. Yeah. Okay, so I I did a quick search here while you were talking. So this $10,000 that you're limited in I-bonds, apparently that's every year. So you could buy $10,000 every year. Yeah, yeah. You could buy $10,000 on December 31st, and then you could buy another $10,000 on January 1st. You could. That could be a way to go. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. For for people who are really conservative like you with their investments, you can only put $6,000 in a Roth IRA, which everybody, if you don't have a Roth IRA, you should totally go open one up. I highly, highly recommend. You can only put $6,000 in a Roth IRA every year. So here you can get $10,000 of bond. We were talking about the 7.12% interest rate on the I bonds, which could change or will change every six months, presumably not a lot. 
What about the EE bonds? Do you know what that interest rate is right now? I don't know off the top of my head. I think it's fairly low, though. EE bond interest rates. Oh, wow. Just guess what that interest rate is on an EE bond. I feel like it's 0.1 or something. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, 0.1. it is. 0.1. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is... Okay, now I understand why everyone's been bugging me about these I bonds. 0.10% interest rate compared to 7.12%. That's a no-brainer. Oh my gosh. Why do they even have these EE bonds? Get Whoever's running the EE bond program, get out of here. This get is ridiculous. <laughs> that being said, it, it appears that these also are reevaluated in November and then April. That being said, they're guaranteed for 30 years. So you will have 0.10% for 30 years guaranteed. Yeah, there's a guarantee that your investment will be doubled in 30 years. Um, that's just, that's what I saw on the Treasury Direct site. Yeah. I'm reading it. It's actually 20, 20 years. So it, it, it reaches maturity at 20 years. So it, you can continue getting payments until 30 years. A little strange. <laughs> sorry. If I go to treasurydirect.gov, do, and I and I buy an EE bond. Can I sell it in five years or or cash out in five years? Yeah, you can cash out in five years. Um, if you do it after five years, then you don't pay a penalty. But if it's before the five years, you pay a three month interest penalty. Okay, got it. And I think you said that earlier. So I can't redeem it for a year. So then between years one and five, if I redeem it, I have to pay three months penalty of interest, which is really not a problem because you didn't have that. It's not taking out of the principal. Right. And then after five years, from years five to 30, you can cash out no problem. Or year 40 or 50, you can cash out no problem. Exactly. Correct. There's some words that I came across that I don't know if we need to know. So maybe we go into these. But yield to maturity, current yield, nominal yield, yield to call, and realized yield. You want to consider all of these things where it's relevant, right? If a bond's not callable, you don't need to consider yield to call, for example. But we can we can just kind of briefly dissect each of these um, if that's helpful. So regular yield, and this is um, when you said current yield, that's just regular yield. That is what your coupon payment is divided by your price, price that the bond is valued at, at that time. If you're looking at a coupon rate, which is actually the nominal yield, that is the coupon divided by what's called the par value. And that's basically that amount that you're getting back at maturity. So remember at the beginning of our conversation, we said the bond is going to be a $1,000 bond and you could get it at a discount or at a premium. But at the end of the maturity date, you're going to get that $1,000 back. That is par value. When you're looking at yields, though, you're dividing it by the price. You're dividing the coupon amount by the price. You're looking more at the bond in the context of the market rather than in the fixed structure that defines the bond. So when you're looking to uh, sell the bond or something like this, or really get into bond trading, or even just look at the value of your bond versus what else is in the market, that's where you're looking at yield. I think the two most important things to focus on here are yield and yield to maturity. So yield is just coupon divided by the price of the bond. Yield to maturity takes that and does a calculation of something called the present value of future payments. In a nutshell, you know, you're getting 50 bucks a year in coupon payments, say. That $50 is worth less later than it is now. So what's the present value of that entire amount? This is assuming that you're holding the bond until maturity. So what is your kind of overall yield that you'll realize if you're holding it until maturity? What yield to maturity does is it really 
lets you compare bonds as apples to apples kind of investments um, because you're factoring in the coupon price, the maturity, and and all of that you know structure um, that's present in the bond and and boiling it down into this one number. Um, and so YTM is a great kind of benchmark um, to compare different bonds. And then realized yield is really similar to that. It's um, the only difference is if you're selling the bond before maturity, if you're selling it at 10 years and it's a 20-year bond, then what is that calculation in that 10-year window instead of the full 20-year window? And and that's basically what that is. I think we cover all those, all five of those. Yeah, yeah. Yield to call was the only other one. And I assume that's if you're looking at it and you say, oh, they could call it at year five. So how much will I make by the time they call, which would be sort of like the guaranteed amount? Yeah, exactly. So return on the investment, assuming that they they call the bond. And then just so I understood that term par, if you're getting a $1,000 bond, the $1,000 is the par. $1,000 is the par. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a golf thing, right? Like if you're if you're hitting a course to par or whatever, it's it's the kind of expected amount that thousand dollars. That's kind of the marker. I don't know what the terms for golf are. I'm not a golf player, but um, you know what I mean. <laughs> Subpar and then over par. I don't know. Super par. No. Um, <laughs> in the context of bonds, discount premium, um, the par is going to be something like a whole thousand or five thousand dollar value or a hundred dollars um, for treasury bonds. So so that's uh those five terms. Okay, so you personally have a very conservative portfolio and you invest in bonds. How do you do that? Are you investing in ETFs or are you going and buying individual bonds? Bond funds right now. Yeah. It just achieves more diversification um, than I could get with individual bonds. That said, I'm looking at my options a little bit more. I don't think uh, individual bonds be off the table. And I mean, I bonds are really interesting right now. Um, I don't know that I won't be locked into that for a few years, um, but it's something to consider. But yeah, it's primarily through bond funds at the moment um, is how I'm getting into it, just to get the conversation. Last May, we we did an experiment on this show where we took $5,000 and we put $1,000 into different investments. Oh, cool. And we're, and we're tracking them. And I wish I had known about I-bonds at that point, because I would have put $1,000 into the I-bonds, because I guarantee the I-bonds are going to beat the return that I'm going to get out of these five things. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to have to add that into our year recap when we're like, okay, it's been a year and a day. What did we do? And then I'm going to be like, well, this is what I-bonds did. So should have just done that. Should have done that. Yeah. Put all the money in the I-bonds, just left it there. It would have done great. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm just going to touch on this. Now, neither of us are financial advisors. There's sort of this rule of 110. That rule is that you take the number 110 and you subtract your age, and then whatever number is left, you put that percentage of your financial portfolio or retirement portfolio into stocks, which are more volatile than bonds, but they're expected to give you a higher return. As you age, you start putting more into bonds. So, So example, I'm 33, so 110 minus 33 equals to 77. So 77% of my portfolio should be in stocks, and 33% should be in fixed income. Do you know this rule, and do you adhere to it? Think it's a good idea? I I have heard of this rule. I know this rule. I would say it depends, like everything else, if I'm going to be a responsible, not official financial advisor, but unofficial. So it depends on your priorities, when you're looking to spend your money, right? So if you're just putting that money away and you're not looking at it, putting this money in, you know, $100 a month or a year, whatever you want to do, and I'm not touching it, that's completely different. You're really playing 
a more long-term investing gain and your goal is to really just grow your wealth. But there may be situations where you're investing money with a purpose. You're wanting to pull that money out in X amount of time. If you need that guarantee, you know, a certain amount of money for my kids' college education, it might be worth skewing conservative. But then for the money you're just putting away, um, I think economic cycles tend to, I want to say 15 to 20 year range um, is what we usually see. Every 15 years, you might see a dip in the economy and some sort of recession. Somebody who's younger, um, like you and me, can ride out a couple of cycles and be relatively okay. But as you're getting closer to 65, you want to make sure that when you're pulling that money out, you know it's going to be there. It's a rule that generally makes sense. And then it just depends on your level of risk tolerance. I think we, to some degree, have an emotional attachment to our money as much as we don't want to admit it. And I know it kind of plays unfavorably in the context of investing because, you know, you see stock prices going down and then your instinct is just to pull money out of the market, right? That considered, if, if you're an emotional investor, like the majority of people are, having some allocation towards bonds can help you feel better at night. My stocks might drop, but my bonds are going to be there for me no matter what. They're kind of an anchor. I think that's really great with the emotional part. And that's partially why we're doing that experiment to see if Ethan Steimel can pick stocks and bonds and investments that do as well. Because I think a lot of people are worried about investing. So they keep their money in their savings account, especially artists, you know, it's like you never know when your next gig is going to be necessarily. So you like to have money in your savings account ready to go. Totally. Now I'm thinking about investing. This could be a strategy where you put $1,000 into an I bond at 7% interest, you know that you're going to be getting that and have that available, you could then take your next 1000 to put it into the riskier investments that might give you a higher return like the, the stock and you could just sort of do 5050 where it's like I guarantee that I'm having a little bit of interest and in income here, I can risk it over here knowing that at least the other half of my stuff isn't going to go away. Exactly. And, you know, the last real financial crisis we had, the true financial crisis that we most recently experienced was in 2008. And so I think people who are getting into the market now, perhaps were a little bit on the younger side and didn't really feel the full effect of that. I was in high school. And so while I was reading about it, and I'm very interested in the market in general, it didn't personally affect me as much. But for people who have gone through something like that, they might have that experience to know that putting your money in a safe spot might be a good idea. That very well could be the bond market. Do you have any financial advice or savings advice for somebody that's starting their career right now or just about to sort of get their retirement savings started? I would 100% endorse what you said at the very beginning of your podcast um, to put a small amount of money away into whichever investment vehicles you choose early on from the very beginning. You'd be just shocked at how quickly that can grow over time if you're investing it wisely. So, you know, put money into a retirement account, whether it's provided by maybe an employer um, or if you're doing that of your own accord. Um, I do largely consulting work along with my startup. So um, I kind of manage that through a financial advisor, but it's it's independent. It's not like a 401k. Um, put that money away and you'll see it grow over time and it will, it will pay dividends. And the same thing with you know putting money into the stock market, bond market, if you choose to take that avenue. But really establish that plan early. As hard as it is being the ups and downs in the market, just don't get emotional about it. It's so much easier said than done, but it's best to just know that you're putting that money away, 
and to not think about it, to just have the intention of really only accessing that money when you're getting closer to retirement. I think taking that approach overall and whatever investments you're interested in, if you know, you're really fond of real estate or something like that, then that might be where you're allocating smoother portfolio. But yeah, just be very intentional, I think. Um, and if you do that, then you'll be good be golden. You mentioned that your retirement plan is through a financial advisor. And you also mentioned that you're very conservative and you're into bonds. So when you're getting bonds, is that in your retirement or is that separate? Like, is that financial advisor putting you in bonds? I'm currently doing that through my financial advisor. I will probably get into doing it on my own a little bit more. I've been in and out of university. It's been a consideration to not necessarily like put a ton of time and money into investing on my own until I got out of that phase of my life, I guess. But but I've been steadily doing that through a financial advisor for years now. And and that has definitely grown. You'd really be surprised if you haven't done that, how much potential that has. So definitely like make that plan early and stick to it. So is there a book or a resource that has helped you learn about bonds that you could recommend to our listeners? So I completely devour Investopedia. I read it all the time, every day. Um, there's so much good content there, as well as um, a website called thebalance.com, which really, really high quality articles. There's a lot of great things that um, investing companies like PEMCO and, and these sorts of companies will publish. And so reading into those can be really helpful. And I've compiled a lot of those learnings into my um, lovely little app that I just released a few months ago. So happy to share that link whenever. I was going to ask about that because I have this little app on my phone called Liquidify. So can you tell us about that app? Right now, it's a learning app for the fixed income market. And um, it has a few series of content as well as more visualization tools to better understand some of those more complex concepts like yield to maturity and this sort of thing. It's just an all-encompassing learning tool for bonds at this point. What I am really striving to get towards with this is making it as easy for individuals to invest in the bond market as it is now to invest in the stock market. Um, And that could be through a brokerage type thing where people are trading individual bonds or just through helping people manage small bond portfolios. Um, but I really feel like there's there's a huge opportunity to make it easier for individuals, um, so that so that we have more of a a say in the, in that market. It's a huge market, and it's so dominated by institutional investors. So I think it'd be really cool um, for us to make our own decisions there. So right now, you know, there's so much to learn about the bond market. We just spent like almost an hour and a half chatting about it, and it's so fascinating. There's so many different kind of corners to learn about, and so um, hopefully, I can provide as much um, high quality content for um, for people who get on that app as possible. So there's something on there called the quiz of the day. I'm going to read the quiz of the day today. All right, <laughs> perfect. What does it mean to buy a bond at a discount? A. The price is higher than the par value. B. The price is equal to the par value. C. The price is below the par value. Now, you created the app, so I'm not going to let you answer. (laughs) So if you're listening and you know the answer to this, whether you're right or wrong, please comment on LinkedIn or any of the social medias on this episode. Write down what the answer is. I can share another one with you. All else equal, a long-term bond has a blank interest rate risk than a short-term bond. And your answer choices are higher, equal, or lower. Higher, equal, or lower. I know what my guess is. I'm not going to say it, though. If you know the answer, put that into a comment somewhere on the social medias, specifically LinkedIn, because that's where I'm hanging these days. Maitre, this was awesome. Where can people connect with you if you want them to? 
Yeah, I would love for people to connect with me. Um, I'm not a heavy social media user. I do love LinkedIn. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook. You can always email me <laughs> old school <laughs> as it is. It's uh, my first name, Maitrey, at liquidifycorp.com because liquidify.com was taken. So liquidifycorp.com. <laughs> Feel free to send me a note. Um, I, I love chatting with people about bonds. Thank you so much for this. This was awesome. I know I learned a ton and I hope people listening learned a ton and I may just now invest in bonds. Amazing. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> of course. Pleasure. Uh, happy to share any more information with your users that they might want to learn about. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It was such a pleasure. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are, I-bonds are bonds that give returns to keep up with inflation. You can purchase $10,000 each year on treasurydirect.gov, and the interest earned is free of city and state tax. Those bonds must be kept for a year, but that is a way better rate than interest on a savings account or a CD. And yes, there is a three-month deduction of the interest if you cash them in before year five, but that's not really a penalty because you get your full principal back. Regarding the tax advantage for education, you can indeed avoid federal tax. Now how this works is you cash in the bond and that same calendar year you spend the money on education or you roll it into a 529 college savings plan. Now what's appealing about that is that a 529 plan is like a Roth IRA in that you can only put after-tax dollars into it. But then once the money is in there, it grows tax-free. By putting bond interest into it, you're not paying taxes on that income, and then you're letting that income grow tax-free in the 529 plan. That all seems a bit complicated, and I'm not advising anything. Let's say you want to have a baby in a couple years, and you want to head start on saving for their college. Well, you could purchase $10,000 of I-bonds. Once the baby is born and you open their 529 college savings account, you then cash in the bonds and put that interest into the college savings account. Now, another takeaway is that most people own bonds through brokerage and retirement accounts for ease of transaction, and that is called the fixed income portion of your portfolio. Also, a story that broke since we recorded, Puerto Rico's bankruptcy settlement. This is a case of where if you owned Puerto Rican government bonds, you would be getting less for them than what you paid for them in the long term. In fact, a 90% loss. Now that stinks, but it isn't as bad as it seems because remember, money is a game. So now most of the debt was held by mutual funds and that protects the owners because the mutual funds own a diverse array of bonds. The holders can absorb that loss. 75% of Puerto Rico's bonds were owned by US mutual funds, which means that if you own bonds in a brokerage, you probably were affected by this. Some of the mutual funds have already sold their stake of Puerto Rican bonds at a loss throughout the past five years, and they wrote those losses off. Now, the mutual funds who purchased them at a low price now stand to gain. In addition, there is a contingency that if the money from Puerto Rico sales tax is high enough, some of that money is going to go back to the bondholders. All this to say, yes, bonds are backed by the government, but government can fail, just as companies like Disney could also go bankrupt and default on their debt. What do you think? Do you plan to invest in bonds? And if so, how and why? So find me or my tray on LinkedIn or email us at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com 
with any comments or thoughts. Again, thank you to my incredible patrons. You may think that your monthly pledge is insignificant. It is wildly significant. Those pledges are paying artistic finances overhead, and I cannot thank you enough for doing that. Plus, we are now supporting 24 other artists on Patreon, and I assure you that they all appreciate that support. If you want to jump in and keep us putting out new episodes each week, pledges start at $3 a month, and in return for that $36 a year, you get outtakes from the interviews, including those from today's chat with Maitre. Join up at patreon.com slash artisticfinance. If you aren't ready to become a patron, that is wonderfully okay. You can still help us out by paying the optional fee for listening, which is to tell somebody about this show. If you tie them in a chair and force them to listen, that's one way to accomplish it. You could also just text them a link. It's totally up to you and your communication style. Here's looking at you, Scorpios. That's it for today. Until next week, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.